Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Previously on Heading for Home, battle in Arlington leads to anticipation of confrontation in Cleveland. Pre-game partying preps perps for 10-cent beer night. Trouble in the stands before the first pitch. Indian starting pitcher Fritz Peterson, resplendent in the team's new fire engine red home jersey with white pants, concluded his warm-ups with a few final tosses to catcher Dave Duncan. Peterson, a 32-year-old southpaw, had come to the Indians in a trade with the Yankees in late April after a rough patch in New York. One of the stranger rough patches in baseball history. In 1973, Peterson traded wives with another player. Actually, he traded families with another player, fellow left-handed pitcher Mike Kekich. They were on the Yankees together for several years, and the families became close. The players ended up liking each other's wives better than their own, it seems, so they agreed to a swap. Ball players travel half the season and are off in their own worlds even when they're home. No one wanted the kids and dogs and goldfish to be uprooted, so the husbands just up and moved into each other's lives. Yankees owner George Steinbrenner was very annoyed by the exchange and unloaded Kekich to the Indians like a weak old fish sandwich. Kekich struggled with the Indians, though, and the tribe cut him before the start of the 74 season. Peterson also had a bad year in 73. His control was way off. And Steinbrenner gave up and traded him to the Indians in April of 74. When Peterson was on, he was great. He won 81 games in five years for the Yankees between 1968 and 1972 with the best control in the majors, and the Indians hoped he would return to that form. Veteran Rangers outfielder and leadoff man Cesar Tovar was off to a slow start on the season, batting 220 as he strolled up to the plate to begin the game. Tovar, from Venezuela, was best known for playing all nine positions in a single game for the Twins in 1968. Tovar slapped a sharp grounder to John Lowenstein at third, who whipped it over to little-used first baseman Ozzie Blanco for the first out of the game. The crowd, distracted by rivers of beer and weird vibes, snapped to attention and roared its approval. Lenny Randall strolled up to the plate, accompanied by a gaudy batting average of 325. A groundswell of boos grew to a gale of disapproval when PA announcer Bob Kiefer said... 
Batting second for the Rangers, second baseman Lenny Randall. Randall took Peterson's first pitch for a ball. Peterson's success was contingent upon his control, so when Randall, only the second batter of the game, drew a walk, it did not bode well. Texas left fielder Alex Johnson, the AL batting champ by 0.0004 percentage points, while with the Angels in 1970, came up to the plate batting third. On the first pitch, tribe catcher Dave Duncan threw out Randall trying to steal second with a laser strike to second baseman Jack Brohammer. As Alex Johnson flew out to Charlie Spikes and Wright to end at the top of the first, an untidy crew tossed a welcoming string of firecrackers down the steps toward the Rangers' dugout. Startled fans covered their ears. Assorted Rangers looked up toward the seats with apprehension, and the smoke drifted lazily upward. Ferguson Jenkins, the rangy, hard-throwing Canadian right-hander, took the mound for the Rangers to begin the home half of the first. The future Hall of Famer won 20 or more games six years in a row between 1967 and 1972 with the Cubs and had over 200 strikeouts every one of those years. He had an off year in 73, and the Cubs traded him to the Rangers. A great athlete, he also played for the Harlem Globetrotters in the offseason in the 60s just because he could. Up first for the Indians was bats left, throws right, third baseman John Lowenstein. The versatile Lowenstein, who also played second base and outfield, was filling in for the injured Buddy Bell at third base and doing a nice job of getting on base and stealing bases in the leadoff role. Lowenstein once informed the press that the secret to winning streaks is to maximize the victories while minimizing the defeats. Despite this wisdom, Lowenstein grounded out to second baseman Randall for the first out. Batting second was second baseman Jack Brohammer, another slick-fielding, bats-left, throws-right guy, in his third year with the Indians. The hammer popped out to Randall for out number two. Left fielder Laron Lee batted third, yet another bats-left, throws-right player, whom the tribe seemed to grow on trees. Lee produced a nice offensive year when he was with the Padres in 72, batting 300 with good power but he had regressed back toward the mean in 73 and seemed to be heading toward the same place in 74. Lee beat out a grounder to Toby Harrod short for a single and the first hit of the game. Cleanup hitter and right fielder Charlie Spikes was up next for the Tribe. The 6'3", 215-pound Spikes had pounded out 23 home runs with 73 RBI for the Tribe in 73 and began 74 with an impressive 19-game hitting streak. The partisan crowd jumped to their feet and oohed and awed as the ball jumped off Spike's bat on the fly toward right field, but collapsed with a groan as Jeff Burroughs corralled the ball for the final out of the inning, leaving the score tied at zero. Peterson ambled out to the mound for the top of the second inning. Though there was still plenty of daylight left at 8 p.m. in early June, the moon was full and round. Right fielder and cleanup man Jeff Burroughs came to bat for the Rangers. The powerful 23-year-old was off to a ripping start on the season, hitting 327 after a very fine 73 season in which he had hit 30 home runs and driven in 85. Peterson got the better of him, though, with his first strikeout of the game. Batting next was Rangers' designated hitter, Tom Greve. After an intensive PR campaign led by flamboyant Oakland A's owner Charlie Finley, 
the American League had adopted the designated hitter rule on a three-year trial basis before the 73 season, allowing teams to insert a substitute hitter for the pitcher. Many fans were ambivalent about the rule. Why shouldn't pitchers have to bat like everyone else? A good-hitting pitcher could really help himself win games. Many pitchers took umbrage with being compartmentalized, marginalized, with the implication that they weren't complete players. But to be honest, most pitchers were, and are, a dead spot at the end of the lineup. It is one of the great oddities of sport that it took almost 50 years for the National League to use the designated hitter, which they did for the first time during the 2022 season. Designated hitter Grieve, hitting 288 as he came to the plate, settled in the batter's box and promptly set a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout sending sonic reverberations and a stately plume of smoke wafting across the stadium. Everything and everyone froze for an anxious instant of suspended animation, then resumed activities as though nothing had happened. No sooner had the smoke cleared when a new commotion sparked up in the same area behind the Indians' dugout. The crowd murmured and popped up to its feet, straining, staring, and pointing. What fresh hell was this? It was only the second inning! On the roof of the Indians' dugout, a substantial, buxom, middle-aged woman in office attire danced and gyrated suggestively on the dugout roof. (laughs) Then, with the rapt attention of 50,000 eyeballs, the woman nimbly clambered down onto the field, danced her way to the on-deck circle, smiled benevolently to the crowd, lifted her blouse, and emancipated her bouncy load. Thus encouraged, the woman jiggled about, delivering kisses to players and officials alike. Head umpire Nestor Shylak was in no mood for unsolicited affection, and with the help of security, ushered the woman off the field and into history. Pina coladas on the train before the game can sneak up on you. Veteran shortstop and six-time All-Star Jim Fergosi, filling in for the Rangers at first base, fly to right. And shortstop, Toby Hara, popped up to catcher Dave Duncan in foul territory, ending the top of the second. There were over 25,000 fans in the stadium, and an inordinate number of them were high school and college-aged kids running around with beers in their hands. It was 10-cent beer night, after all. The drinking age in Ohio in 1974 was 18 for low beer, beer with less than 3.2% alcohol. After her daughter was killed by a drunk driver in 1980, Candace Leitner formed MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. An attitude towards drinking began to change dramatically. Just four years later, in 1984, Congress passed the National Minimum Drinking Age Act, establishing 21 as the legal purchase age in the United States. One can debate the rights angle, but regular drinking by high school seniors dropped from 66% in 1985 to 41% in 2012. So there's that. In the bottom of the second, Jenkins struck out Oscar Gamble, bringing up lanky Indian center fielder George Hendrick, an immensely talented enigma wrapped in a riddle. Hendrick, 24, already had more nicknames than most players accumulate over an entire career, and none of them were wholly complimentary. He was Silent George because he refused to talk to the media. Jogging George and Captain Easy 
reflected both that he moved with elite athletic grace whenever he wanted to, but also that he didn't always want to. George came to the tribe in a trade from Oakland along with Dave Duncan in March of 73 and had a fine campaign, batting 268 with 21 home runs and 61 RBI, even though he missed the last six weeks of the season with a broken wrist. But it felt like there was so much more hidden beneath that enigmatic veneer. Hendrick flew out to Tovar and center for out number two. Little used first baseman Ozzie Blanco, filling in for the injured John Ellis, came to the plate batting a paltry 148. He ripped a liner right at Ranger third baseman Leo Cardenas to end the bottom of the second. The stadium lights were on, but hadn't really taken effect in the still bright sky, though it was now well past 8 p.m. The blend of natural and artificial light cast weird shadows across the landscape. Rangers third baseman Leo Cardenas advanced from the on-deck circle to home plate to start the top of the third inning. Cuban-born Cardenas was at the tail end of a long career, mostly with the Reds, that had seen him make five all-star teams as one of the slickest fielding shortstops of his era. He came to the plate for the Rangers, batting a lofty 372. However, baseball is a hard game, and Peterson induced Cardenas to ground out to Lowenstein at third for the first out. Rookie Rangers catcher Jim Sundberg assumed his place in the right-handed batter's box, batting 250 with nary a home run on the season. But he had earned his way to the majors on his defensive abilities. Sundberg lashed a liner to the wall in center and stormed into second with a double. Leadoff man Tovar returned to the plate for a second at bat as Sundberg edged off second. Peterson went to the stretch, looked Sundberg back to the base, and delivered a fastball to Tovar, who turned it forcefully around for a double to the gap and right, scoring Sundberg easily and sending a strong ripple of discontent through the stadium with a score 2-0 in favor of the Rangers. Peterson retired Lenny Randall on a liner to Lee and left for out number two, then slammed the door with a crafty curve on the corner for a called third strike against Alex Johnson to get out of the inning without additional damage. Leading off the bottom of the third and batting eighth for the Tribe, Dave Duncan moseyed up to the plate. He was hitting a miserly 182, but Duncan was still coming back from a wrist injury, and he had just hit a home run two days before against the Royals. Duncan flew out to Tovar in center. Indian shortstop Frank Duffy came to the plate, but Jenkins had his number two, delivering a fastball on the outside corner that Duffy lunged at and popped to first. Then John Lowenstein flied out to right field to end the third inning with a thud. The crowd veered toward the surly again out of boredom, thwarted revenge, and virtually unlimited beer. Technically, there was a limit of six beers per customer per purchase, but enforcement was mm, variable, and there was no limit to the number of times you could get in line. Most of the seats were now in shadow, with the stadium lights beginning to take effect in the gloaming. One of the great beauties of baseball is that it isn't on a clock and it takes as long as it takes. But the fans on this evening didn't seem to be in the mood for a leisurely stroll through the Elysian fields. They wanted the Indians to administer a righteous and vicious beatdown on the Rangers for the indiscretions of the previous week in Arlington, for the fact that the Indians had mostly sucked for 20 years, for the burning Cuyahoga River and drab, shitty winters. 
Shuttered factories, lost jobs, four students shot dead at Kent State, and just everything. Next time on Heading for Home, sliding naked into history. A tribal drumbeat demands blood sacrifice. The tribe shows some life. A rookie is welcomed with gifts and salutations, and the Rangers extend their lead. Heading for Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson. Sound design and original music by Richard Ingraham. Performed by Eric Olson, Buck McWilliams, Alex Olson, Mars Fargo, Tom Fulton, Marty O'Sullivan, Don Olson, Donna Westfall, Brian Westfall, and Richard Ingraham. Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a Tencent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. There was aggression in the air before the game even started. She shrieked and disappeared beneath him. With surprising agility, her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer The Indians got behind early, and the mood was explosive. Designated hitter Grieve settled in the batter's box and promptly set a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout. A streaker took to the base paths. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Though chippy, the crowd was also creative and expressive. There was a family of mooners. A pair of fans bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over, and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers, rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double moon salute. As the tribe fell into a five to one hole and the alcohol took hold, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer pled for sanity. Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians players and management request that you stop throwing things and stop running onto the field. Thank you for your cooperation. The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium, some doing somersaults and cartwheels, some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, poked and shooed at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash. Act! 
the beer ran out. Attention guests, all concession stands have run out of beer. Just kidding. However, beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield fence. Despite the drunken streaker's destruction and explosions, the Indians were on the verge of a huge comeback. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat and sent a squipper toward Larry Brown at third, who charged and grabbed it cleanly, but had no place to go with the throw. Crosby dashed to third, Torres to second, and young Ashby stood on first with what the young man moved like a spy in a cartoon, crouching low, stepping high, tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burrow. The dam burst. Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I've been in this business for over 20 years and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request that you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you. Don't miss Heading for Home, season one of Freakish History, the bizarre true tale of the 10-cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974.